Hey, Arizona Christian University Band Overflow, thank you guys for being here. It's awesome, great job. These guys love Jesus and they do a great job and it's fun to have them with us this morning and also lets us give uh, new dad Aaron a little break as the uh, baby came three weeks early and he had to get us through Easter and now these guys are coming to help us out, so we're grateful and appreciate it, and uh, I have the privilege of serving as a trustee at ACU, and uh, just know that um, these guys are wonderful representatives of the school, but there's just a lot of great, uh, great kids who are growing in Christ and getting a great education there, too, so we're really excited to have them. And we're uh, starting a new series this morning, and it's called Favor with Kings, uh, and we're going to walk through... Uh, the, the book of Nehemiah. And, and I'll, you know, for years, the book of Nehemiah has been considered a great textbook on leadership and management. It's a story of Nehemiah who has remarkable impact uh, on Jerusalem, uh, who restores Jerusalem, uh, the walls and the gates of Jerusalem, and the way he does it and how he does it is a great story of, of God's faithfulness, but also his leadership and his management style, and, and so it's going to be fun to look at that, but this morning, uh, we want to consider a couple of things that help us kind of get a context uh, on who Nehemiah was and what he did, and, and as we begin, I want to start with this one little story, because last week, I was with a friend and he was telling a story about his son. Uh, my friend has, uh, his wife uh, for over 30 years had MS and they cared for her. And he had three kids, two girls and one son. And the daughter sort of stepped in and they helped take care of their mom. And the son just got mad and got rebellious and, and angry and started behaving in ways that was really destructive for him and destructive for the family. And so as my friend was telling the story, he said there came a point when his son's behavior was so destructive uh, that he told him, look, you need to either change your behavior or you can't live here anymore. And he wasn't an adult yet, so it was a, it was a, a pretty tough, painful uh, decision that this dad had to make. And, and so he, he said, look, this is the only option. That, you know, there's too much going on in our family. There's too much pain in our family. So if you can't uh, if you can't live by the family rules, then you're going to need to move out. And, and he tells the story that, that his son didn't change his behavior. He stayed rebellious and destructive. And finally, uh, my friend said that he helped him pack his car. And he said, you're going to have to leave. But every Thursday morning, uh, I'm going to go to the little diner that you and I have gone to every Thursday morning while you're growing up. And if you want to talk... Uh, if, if you want to be with me, then I'll be at that diner every Thursday morning, and you can show up there. And so his son moved out and continued in uh, his destructive uh, behavior. It was an incredibly painful time uh, for this family. Uh, it, it was, they felt like they'd lost their son, and uh, this went on for quite a while. And two months before his mother passed away, he showed up and uh, met his dad and reconciled with his family and came back to his faith in Christ and is a great dad and husband today and, and uh, has a great job and doing well in his life. 
but took everybody through just an incredible amount of pain along in the journey. And one of the things that we're going to see uh, from the story of Nehemiah is how God uses our pain. That so often when we experience pain uh, in our lives that we want to ignore it, we want to get rid of it, we, we want to heal it, we want to stop it, whatever it is, um, but, we, but we don't allow pain sometimes to remind us of who we are uh, to remind us that God is up to something. Uh, we don't allow that pain to be a message from the Lord that I want your attention, that I want you uh, to look to me. I want you to understand who I am. And, and so we work so hard to avoid the pain. We work so hard to get rid of it. And, and all of the time, God is using that pain. He's reminding us of how much he loves us. We're gonna look at that pain as we go this morning. And part of what we're going to do in this series is um, uh, we're going to, our small groups are going to be going through this. And, and if you want to supplement to the series, there's a book that was written by um, a great young pastor in Huntington Beach named Caleb Anderson, just happens to be our oldest son. And uh, he wrote a book, Favor with Kings. It's a terrific little book. And uh, so you can also use this as part of the series. Uh, we have copies at the Home Point Center, or you can get them at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, any retailer uh, will have them. Uh, but part of his story, part of Nehemiah's story, is how God used pain uh, to get his attention. Uh, C.S. Lewis said this uh, years ago, that God whispers to us in our pleasures, he speaks to our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Did you get that? God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world that God will use that pain in our lives to, to wake us up, to get our attention, to say, listen, I want, I, want to, I want you to know me. I want you to come to me. And that's the story of Nehemiah. That's the story we're going to look at. And, and let's look at a little bit of the context uh, of Nehemiah. Uh, about, oh, the, you know, 6th <laughs> century B.C., uh, back in 586 B.C., the Babylonians came and they sacked Jerusalem. And they tore down the walls and they burned the gates of Jerusalem they, they, and they stole everything that they could from the temple. They ransacked the temple, took all the valuable things and, uh, and left Jerusalem in ruins. And then they took the leaders, they, they took the young and the educated, they took those who had leadership uh, qualities and they took them with them to Babylon. They took him into exile, assimilated them into their culture. And that was one of the ways that they would try to keep the country that they had conquered from rebelling, that they would take all of the leaders uh, with them and take them to their country. Well, about 100 years later, the Persians come under Cyrus the Great, and they uh, conquer the Babylonians. And so now you have the, <laughs> the people in Jerusalem who were exiled uh, to Babylon now have been exiled to Persia and are under the Persian leadership. Uh, they're slaves to the Persians, and this is where we find Nehemiah. So he wasn't just uh, from Jerusalem, exiled into Babylon, but he was another, he was generations later exiled in Persia, and at the time that he was there, Artaxerxes was the king of Persia. 
That's the context that Nehemiah is living in. Uh, the other thing that we know about Nehemiah that's sort of interesting, one thing is that his name means the Lord has comforted. The Lord has comforted. The, the other thing that we know about Nehemiah is that he was the cupbearer for the king. He just makes this statement at the end of chapter one, and he says, and I was the king's cupbearer. Now, that's sort of cupbearer. You kind of think, what do they do, right? Uh, but the truth is that in history, cupbearers were, uh, were officials in the court of the king. A cupbearer was a really important person. Uh, a cupbearer's job, he ate like a king, by the way, the cupbearer did, because he would taste everything that the king ate. He was the one that would take a swig of the wine before the king did to make sure that it wasn't poison. So a cupbearer had a great job until it wasn't a good job, right? Seriously, yeah. But imagine that you're the cupbearer to the king, and the king, in essence, trusts you with his life. He trusts you. He believes in you. He's given you that position because he completely trusts you with his life. And so that's the picture of somehow, in the court of Artaxerxes, Nehemiah, had become a person that the king trusted with his life. Now, historically we know, and it's really interesting because there's what we call extra-biblical evidence about Cyrus the Great and Xerxes and Artaxerxes, and, and there's archeologists have found things that tell us more about the story than we even get in scripture, but um, what we know about cupbearers is that generally they had to be uh, handsome or, or beautiful, they had to be very articulate because you were in the presence of the king all of the time. And so it's a very unique person. And we have this Jew uh, whose ancestors were from Jerusalem, who were exiled into Babylon, who are now exiled into in, Persia. They're actually in a city called Shusha. It's, uh, the Hebrew said Shushan. And it was the winter palace uh, for the Persians where our story takes place. And he finds himself there, and not only is he there in exile, but he has risen to the position of cupbearer for King Artaxerxes. A lofty position, a high position. That's the setting, that's the, 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 the setting for our story, the setting for uh, his life. And now we look at Nehemiah, the first chapter, and here's what the scripture says, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakila. Uh, what he wants us to understand is that Nehemiah is writing his memoirs. We're getting a peek at his journal. So this is his story that he's telling us. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakala, and now it happened in the month of Kislev. Kislev uh, in, in the Hebrew calendar uh, comes from mid-November on our calendar to mid-December. Uh, from Kislev in the 20th year, as I was in Shusha, the capital, the, uh, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped uh, and who survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who have survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed. So Nehemiah learns that Jerusalem is in great trouble, that enemies surround them, that their gates have been broken down, their, their, their walls have been destroyed, that they are helpless to invaders, uh, that everyone has lost hope. The original 
original exiles that, were, that Cyrus the Great actually allowed to return to Jerusalem uh, did the best they could to repair the temple, but they never got to the gates, and now they're surrounded by enemies. They've given up hope. Their morale is down. Uh, they're helpless, and they're worried constantly that they're going to be taken over again by some enemy, by some foreign power. And even more than that, Nehemiah is aware that God's whole dream of redeeming the world, of forming a, a redemptive community and having a covenant with them, that God's plan for, for creating a people that will be his people, that will be his example of community and life in the world, that the Messiah will come from, that that community that God ordained in Jerusalem is gonna be decimated and God's dream and God's plan for the world is going to be lost if Jerusalem is lost. And so Nehemiah is devastated by this news. In fact, what we get in verse four is as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. That that was his response. Oh, okay, but wait a minute. Nehemiah is a book of great leadership and action, but it begins with great pain. It begins with uh, Nehemiah being confronted with the situation in Jerusalem, that the walls are down, the gates are destroyed, that his people are helpless, his, his relatives, his ancestors, people that he belonged to, his people are in danger, and it devastates him, and when he hears that story, he weeps, and he mourns, and he fasts and prays for days, that it says. That's his response. And it's out of that pain that God causes him to do something. It's out of that pain that he's motivated to action. <laughs> How many of you have ever heard of Popeye? Popeye, seriously, come on, even you young guys, that's right, Popeye, if, if you know, nothing else, Robin Williams did a movie about him, right? But he was a cartoon, and before that, he was a comic strip, and Popeye was this sailor, Popeye the sailor man, I could sing it for you, but I won't. Popeye the sailor man would find himself in all of these horrible situations, right? and uh, somebody's, you know, kidnapped olive oil or somebody's done, you know, beaten up wimpy or whatever and all these things happen and, and Popeye is experiencing all of this and then suddenly uh, Popeye stops and his little crooked face, you know, he says what? He says, uh, he says, that's all I can stands and I can't stands no more, right? And he pops his can of spinach and he chugs it down and he becomes a superhero and saves the day and you know works over all the bad guys and all that kind of stuff happens. And that's what happened to Nehemiah. Nehemiah heard the story of his people and he said, that's all I can stand, I can't stand no more. And he's gotta do something. And what we're gonna look at this morning is the very first thing that Nehemiah did to open up this great story of God's redemption, to open up this great story of God's provision for his people. Nehemiah, he weeps and he prays. That's what he did. You see, we have this, we have this commitment, we have this idea here at North that, that prayer isn't simply a prelude to get to the important stuff. Uh, prayer isn't just, you just sort of open and pray, and then you get to the really big things, the important things. 
uh, that, that you kind of do that. It's like saying grace at a meal. You sort of ask God's blessing and, you, and then you kind of move on and do what you can do and do what you can accomplish and use your own strength. But that's not what Nehemiah teaches us in this story. That's not what God would want us to understand that the very first thing that Nehemiah did is that he prayed to the God who created the universe. Picture this, that you're going into the most difficult situation of your life and who wouldn't want to tap in to the God who created the whole universe? Who wouldn't want to tap into the God who is the great God of everything, who formed his people, who loves his people, who gave us life? Who wouldn't want to tap into that strength and that power? And Nehemiah said, the very first thing that needs to happen here is that I need to tap into God's strength. I need to take this to the Lord. And that's what he does. We, we, we get it mixed up sometimes that, that we, we pray, but then we still think it's all about us. We, we sort of say, God bless this, and then I'm, but now I'm gonna go fix this. I'm gonna go make all of this better. But that's not what we learned from Nehemiah. That the first thing that he did, where he got his power, where he got his wisdom, where things started moving, was when Nehemiah went to prayer. Verse five, it says this, and I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. So here's how he starts his prayer. He says, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, that he begins with acknowledging who God is. He begins with saying that you're God and I'm not. Let's get that clear first. And then he says, you are the great God and your deeds are awesome and your love is steadfast to those who obey you. And this idea of steadfast love, what we know, it's a Hebrew word, hased, and it means it's God's kind of love that when God gets a hold of us, he won't let us go, that God's love stays with us, that he continues with us. He's long-suffering. When he says, I love you, he is committed to us, and he won't let us go. And when we struggle and we fail and we go our own way, God says, I'm going to hold on to that person. I'm still going to love that person, even though they're going to live with the consequences of their actions, right? He said, to those who obey me, who love me, and I've told some of you this, that when our sons were young, we had a wooden spoon. And uh, we had three boys, okay, so they needed an occasional tap. And <clears throat> so we had this wooden spoon, and I wrote on the wooden spoon, consequences. And I would tell them every time that I'm not punishing you, but these are consequences, that we had a deal, we had a commitment, and you decided not to keep that commitment, and for every action, there's a reaction, there's a consequence to your actions. And it's not that I don't love you and it's not that I wanna hurt you or anything, it's, it's that we all need to learn consequences, right? And we learned consequences through a couple of wooden paddles, I'm pretty sure. But always, so let me, let me just say this too, that we always made, uh, had a commitment that afterwards we'd hug him, tell him we love him, we'd you know, process it through, but we needed to teach him what consequences were like. And, and this is what 
Nehemiah is praying. He says, God, there's been consequences to our actions, and, and, and I acknowledge that. He says, let your ear, in verse 6, be attentive, and your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant, and I now be pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Isn't that interesting? That he prays, and he says, I am confessing the, the sins of, of Israel that we have committed against you. He doesn't say, those guys in Jerusalem, I know they've really messed it up, Lord, but I really want I want you to help him. I want you to intervene. But he said, this is, this is us collectively as your people. We've missed the mark that we've sinned, that we've rebelled, that we've strayed from you. And we are all confessing that right now. I am owning that, that I am part of that. In fact, he goes on to say, even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded to your, to your prophet Moses. So here's the first thing that he says. He, well, he acknowledges who God is, that you are great, that you are the great God. Your deeds are amazing. That's who you are, and I recognize who you are. And you are the God of steadfast love and I thank you for your love for me in spite of all of this and now I confess that we have fallen short. I confess that we have strayed. I confess that our behavior hasn't met the mark. It hasn't met the standard that you set for us, God. And please forgive us of that. So he acknowledges who God is, the greatness of God. He gives him praise and then he acknowledges that they've sinned, that they've strayed and that they are living the consequences of how they've behaved, of how they've lived. And that's how he begins this prayer for his people. That's how he begins to serve the people in Jerusalem, the people of Israel, by giving God glory, acknowledging who he is, by uh, confessing their sins. And then he continues on. He says, remember, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the people. There's the consequences. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though our outcasts are in the utmost parts of heaven, from uh, there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Lord, these, these aren't my people. These are your people. They belong to you, and I acknowledge that. They're not mine. I don't have any control. I don't have any power over them, but they belong to you. And think about this now as we pray, as we think about our kids, as we think about people in our lives, that, that we acknowledge who God is, that we acknowledge the fact that we've rebelled, that we've sinned, but we also say, God, but I wanna, I'm reminded now that they're not, my, they're not mine, but they belong to you. My kids belong to you. My grandkids belong to you. My friends belong to you. My family at North belong to you. They're yours. And I acknowledge that this morning. I thank you because the truth is that God loves you way more than anybody else. God loves my, our kids and our grandkids more than we can even imagine, more than we could ever love them. And there's a point that we acknowledge that that's who he is. And his love is everlasting. The great said, the steadfast love of God. He loves us. He finishes with, O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant 
and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of men. And then he just simply says, now I was the cupbearer of the king. You know, this could have been annoying to Nehemiah. He'd reached the pinnacle of success and influence in the Persian Empire, the great Persian Empire. He had a great life. He ate like a king. He lived in a palace. He was trusted by Artaxerxes. He could have refused to hear, but he didn't. He, he could have said, I don't want this bad news. I don't want to hear it. I have a great life. I have everything that I ever wanted, everything that I ever dreamed, and now you're telling me this like I'm supposed to do something. I'm not a magician. I'm not God. I can't do anything. Leave me alone. Here, how about this? What if I set up some apartments for you here in, in, in Persia, and you could just live here, and, and you could eat the king's food too, and we can take care of you here. You don't even need to go back to Jerusalem, but that's not what he did. That when when he experienced that pain and we got the information about his people, he turned to God and said, God, forgive us for missing you. Forgive us for straying from you. Forgive us for forgetting who you are. And and here's what he did, that the very first line of battle that he took was to go to God in prayer. Not to just say, hey, God, bless this, but now I'm going to go get an army from Artaxerxes, and we're going to go, and we're going to, we're going to wipe out the bad guys, and we're going to build that wall, and we're going to build those gates, and I'm going to go down in history as a, a great leader. He didn't do that, and, and so often what, what we want to do is to figure out how, how we can score in this deal, how we can become prominent, how we can sort of get the headlines from this deal, how we can become bigger and more famous, and how we can solve all of the problems, and Nehemiah doesn't do this, but this great leader first went to God and said, this belongs to you, and these are your people, Jerusalem's your city, Lord, we want to give it back to you, we want you to rebuild it, we want you to take it up for us. And that's what he did. He prays. And it's not just that he prayed, it's how he prayed. And God used the pain to get him motivated, to get him moving. And the next great step was urgent prayer. He made things right with God. Even in Shusa, the palace of the king, Nehemiah had not forgotten who God was and he hadn't forgotten who he was and he acknowledges the greatness of God first, that God is great and awesome, astonishing, powerful, who keeps his promise, who has steadfast love for his people and we take that to understand that God is long-suffering, that God loves those who keeps his commandments. We also learn something that's really important, that love and obedience matter to God that God said, I'm calling you to love and obey me. That what he's calling people of Jerusalem back to is to love God and obey him. But to love him first, to be reminded of who he is. And we of all people should understand that much better than the people in Jerusalem did back in the fifth century, we should appreciate how much God loves us that he would send his son to die on a cross for us so that we might have life, that God has always kept his promises, that God's steadfast love has operated in our lives, is part of our story, what he has done, and that periodically we need to take some time to be reminded of who he is and what he's done in our lives. And so if you want a great leadership lesson, 
It begins with prayer. It begins with returning back to God and saying, Lord, this is about you. This is for you. He even acknowledges his sin. Nehemiah asked God to forgive his people to regather them to the land to restore God's favor and blessing to them. People that God uses are not only believing people who obey the Lord and courageously move ahead, but they're also people who will challenge others. And there are people who will pray. This isn't a project that we just simply ask God to rubber stamp and we're going to move on and fix it, but it's a project that we give ourselves first and then the need back to the Lord. I've had this friend for years and years. In fact, he's in his mid-80s now. And his name is Bob, and he used to be the president of Young Life. And <clears throat> He tells this story that... <laughs> uh, no, Bob? Thank you. He tells a story that he... Um, you have to pay attention when your wife corrects you, but I had this one. Nine times out of ten, though, I'm going to go with what she said. <clears throat> but he tells this story about he was watching TV one night, and he happened to catch a Billy Graham crusade. And, uh, <laughs> and um, he thought, way to go, Billy. This is good. This Bob's a funny guy. And he says, that was that's cool, so I'm going to write Billy Graham a note. He writes him a note, kind of one of those, hey, nice job, Billy. Way to go. Love what you're doing. And sends this note off to, to Billy Graham, you know, of all people. And it's kind of the peak of Billy Graham's ministry. And, and uh, next thing he knows, he gets a phone call one day, and it's somebody from Billy Graham's office. He thinks it's a crank call, right? He's about to hang up on him, and he realized, wait a minute, this person's serious. They, they, they work for Billy Graham, and so he takes the call, and, and, and the person says, Billy got your note, and he really appreciated it, and he would like you to, to meet, he would like to meet with you, and, and he said, so he's gonna be in Toronto on these dates, and if you could get up to Toronto, he would love to spend a little time with you. And Bob said, okay, seriously, what are you gonna do? And he flies to Toronto, and he's taken up to Billy Graham's hotel room, and they have a nice little chat, and Billy says, you know, love what you guys are doing, and young life, and it's great ministry, and, and uh, somebody knocked on the door and said, Dr. Graham, we need to go. It's, it's time to, to, uh, to leave, and, and so Billy Graham says to my friend Bob, he said, um, he, he said uh, um, hey, would you, could we just take a minute and pray? Would you like to pray with me for a minute? Of course, you know, Bob says yes, and they kneel um, in Billy Graham's hotel room, they kneel next to the bed, and for the next hour and a half, my friend listens to Billy Graham pray for kids. He listened to Billy Graham weep for children in our country and children all over the world and for an hour and a half, they knelt by that bed while Billy Graham prayed. Well, Billy Graham prayed for kids and he prayed for the ministry and he prayed for my friend Bob, but he committed it all to the Lord and people kept knocking on the door saying, Dr. Graham, we've got to go. Dr. Graham, we've got to be someplace. You know, this is Billy Graham. He's a big time guy and he prayed for an hour and a half. My friend Bob knelt by that bed and listened to Billy Graham pray. And when he got home, he asked this question. He said, here's the thing that, here's the thing that hit me when was the last time I wept over kids? 
when was the last time that I spent an hour and a half praying over kids, praying that God would get a hold of their hearts, praying that God would save the children of our country and children of the world? When was the last time I prayed an hour and a half for anything? And, and it really changed his life, and it marked all of us that, that heard the story. And it convicted all of us that heard this story because this is Billy Graham. And for 90 minutes, for an hour and a half, he cried out to the Lord for children, cried out to the Lord for kids. So the question's pretty obvious, right? When was the last time that we spent an hour and a half praying about anything? When was the last time that we wept over the children in our country who don't know Jesus, children around the world who haven't had an opportunity to hear about Christ? When was the last time that we had pain in our lives that motivated us first and foremost to go to the God who created everything, the God of heaven and earth, the God who is over all things, and to ask him to go to him uh, to, on, on the behalf of people, on the behalf of family, on the behalf of children, to intercede in their lives? If you want to be a great leader, you got to tap into the source. You got to tap into the power. None of us are that good. None of us are that capable. None of us are that smart. But when was the last time that you really tapped into the source of power? When was the last time you spent time on your knees? given all of that back to God. That's what Nehemiah wants us to understand. That's where he wants us to start. And we're going to build from that prayer. Here's the great thing about Nehemiah. There's 13 chapters in Nehemiah. There are 12 prayers in Nehemiah. This guy was serious about prayer. And what God did was a miracle. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you this morning. Uh, thank you for the story of Nehemiah for his leadership, but Lord, for his passion for God and his recognition that, that what he was going to accomplish was going to happen first through prayer and then through what you called him to do, then through the actions that you led him to, Lord. But it was going to be through prayer and through your power and your love and your desire to restore your people. And Lord, we confess this morning that prayer's hard, we confess this morning, Lord, that we, that we don't pray. We don't pray anything like that. We don't pray like Billy Graham. Lord, uh, we acknowledge that this morning, and we simply ask, Lord, that you would put a burden in our heart, that you would motivate us, that you would encourage us, that you would drive us, Lord, whether it's through pain, whether it's through need, whatever it is, Lord, but that our first step would be to come to you. Our first step would be to pour out our heart to you to seek your power and your comfort and your wisdom. Uh, Lord, to trust you over ourselves. We ask that, Lord, we give you praise and glory and thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me, please? We'll have prayer partners in the corner as always, and and uh, they're there. If you would like prayer to stop by, and they would love to pray for you and with you. And then as always, also our prayer table, as you go out the door, um, you can fill out one of the cards. And uh, again, it's our privilege to pray uh, for you during the weekend. And we get uh, emails and 
other messages, you can go on the website during the week if you have a prayer request or you can email one of us directly. But again, we consider that part, we consider that the work of the ministry. So our staff, uh, we pray through all of the requests every Monday morning together as a team. And uh, we, we, do, we don't consider it prayer a prelude to what we're doing, but we consider that part of the work of the ministry that God's called us to. So I would encourage you to write your prayer requests and we would love to pray for you and with you during the week. Here's my prayer. My prayer is that, that God in his great love and great mercy will remind us who he is and will call us to a life of greater prayer that we would recognize that he's the source of our strength, that he's the source of our wisdom, that it's not something we just do so we can get to the important stuff, but that we take those things to the Lord in prayer and we trust him with the events of our lives, with the situations, crisis, whatever it is in our lives, and we give those to him. I love you guys. Have a great day. God bless you.